Good morning, brothers and sisters. Now let's continue our worship with today's call, Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7. I will be reading from the New International Version. Please follow along. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Dear Heavenly Father, indeed you are the ancient of days. Your power will never fail, your throne will remain forever, and your love for us will never change. But when we look around ourselves and when we look within ourselves, we must admit that neither we nor our world is so stable. It seems like the world and our communities, um, our workplaces, and even our church are always changing. And so are our friends and our families and even our own bodies. In the midst of all this change, it is sometimes a challenge to hold on to and be grounded in the truth that you never do. So we pray, Heavenly Father, would you give us the grace we need? Would you give us the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to look deep into the face of Jesus Christ and to look high into the heavens where his throne remains and to know ourselves safe and secure in this great salvation he has given to us by his cross and resurrection. And help us to entrust into your hands all that we carry in our minds and our hearts. Lord, we pray for your help, especially with the changes that we are experiencing in our church. There's some exciting new developments as well as some sorrowful goodbyes. Please bring us together closer than ever before. Please thicken our relationships and please deepen our honesty and please use us to bring comfort and encouragement to one another. And Heavenly Father, may our connection groups and the ways to serve that we learned about or were reminded of in the past couple of weeks, may they become the contexts and spaces for this to happen. Please empower our connection group and ministry leaders and bind us together as the body of Christ. And please bring to us or raise up among us brothers and sisters who can fill the vacancies on our staff and leadership, perhaps fill them or, or even perhaps help us discern what you desire for them instead. Please empower our pastors and elders with the wisdom and love to shepherd us through this time of transition and, and please do empower every one of us here to prayerfulness for our needs as a church. And may you, the ancient of days, be magnified in our lives as we entrust all our changes to you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this is uh, Labor Day weekend, the traditional end of summer, but with the scorching temperatures, it uh, feels more like we're in the height of summer. Uh, tomorrow and Tuesday are gonna be even worse. And uh, Labor Day uh, weekend is also the traditional end of the summer break and the beginning of a new school year. 
except that uh, many kids have been back for at least a couple of weeks and teachers maybe for four weeks. And um, they're back in class and both, student, both the parents and the teachers are hoping that the kids are making a successful transition back into learning to pay attention in class again. And uh, maybe they impress on them the seriousness of what they're doing. You must pay most careful attention to what you have heard or else. An exhortation to listen and a warning of the consequences for not doing so. A carrot and a stick. The carrot, the prospect of future reward. The college of your choice, the possibility of a scholarship. All parents want to hear that. The stick, or else the dire consequences of not paying attention. You'll fail the test, your grades will suffer, you won't get into your college of choice. And so our students, especially here in the Bay Area, are under enormous pressure to perform. And you, as some of you have, parents, have kids in school, uh, are also under great pressure for them. So students face great challenges. Uh, and it can be difficult to pay attention in class. Kids have spent their summer on their phones, engaging in social media, playing video games, and uh, many they're now back having to learn to survive without their phones because many schools have cell phone policies. Uh, you can't take a phone into class. You have to leave it in the locker all day. If you do, take it to school. And all of this in, to prevent distraction in class in the hope that this, to encourage the students to actually pay attention. And then many students have ADHD, and for them it is hard to pay attention. They struggle, and they struggle to maintain focus. And then uh, some students may wonder, is it even worth paying attention? Will it be on the test, they ask this teacher. If not, why bother paying attention? Well, the best teachers inspire their students to pay attention, whether or not a top particular topic is going to be on the test. They make their classes interesting, and they keep their students engaged. Now, three weeks ago, I closed my first sermon on Hebrews with a colic for the second Sunday of Advent uh, from the Book of Common Prayer. And it begins this way. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in so wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. So this is the hope of every teacher, that the students will hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. And this verb mark here means to observe, to take notice of something, as in the expression, mark my words. Now, I grew up with this phrase, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. It's a very well-known phrase in the UK where the English language is so heavily shaped by uh, the King James Version, by the Book of Common Prayer, and by Shakespeare. Here, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. So, this is what every teacher wants of his or her students. It, what, it's what the preacher wants from uh, his or her listeners. And it's what I hope of you. And it is what the author of the book of Hebrews wants of his readers. Because his work is best understood as a sermon. It's best heard as a sermon. And he wants his listeners to pay attention. He wants his listeners to pay attention to the sermon, to pay attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to pay attention to themselves and their own Christian life. 
and he periodically warns of the danger of not doing so, of not paying attention. And these are what are so-called warning passages of the book of Hebrews. And we come to the first such warning passage today at the beginning of chapter two. So here the word of the Lord. We must pay the most careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, this is essentially another very long, skillfully written sentence comparable in length to that opening sentence of chapter one. And it breaks readily into three parts, although uh, the NIV has broken it into four sentences. So we'll work through these three parts. Firstly, we must pay attention. Therefore, so whenever there's a therefore, we ask what it is therefore. And uh, in light of everything that we heard in chapter one, the preacher now transitions to application. Therefore, we must pay most careful attention to what we have heard. So what have we heard? Well, we've heard in chapter one that God spoke in the past to ancient Israel and that he has now spoken definitively in his son. We have heard seven statements showing the excellence of the son and we have heard seven uh, Old Testament quotations from Israel's scriptures showing how the word that God spoke in the past is fulfilled in the word that he has spoken in his son. And the preacher is finished with a reference to us, those who will inherit salvation. Now inheritance is mentioned three times in chapter one. We read that God has appointed the heir, the son, heir of all things. The entire creation will come under his rule. And at his enthronement, the son has inherited a superior name as the true heir to David's throne. And then God intends that we also be heirs, that we be heirs of salvation. Salvation is something that we will inherit. Coming into this inheritance is yet future. Coming into possession of the inheritance requires faithfully finishing the journey, following Christ who has gone before us as our forerunner as our pioneer. And meanwhile, we must keep paying attention to what we have heard. What we have heard is Jesus. The preacher has expounded the greatness of the Son. He has set Christ before us in his excellence and glory. He has lifted up to our gaze the risen and enthroned Lord Jesus Christ. This is his carrot, as it were to place Christ before us in all of his beauty. And then he also has a stick, this warning, lest we drift away. And the preacher will alternate back and forth throughout his sermon, on the one hand expounding the excellence of Christ, and on the other hand exhorting his readers to continue to pay attention to Christ with warnings about the consequences for failure to do so. You see, he expounds the Christ, not as abstract theology, but to place Christ before us in such a way that we are inspired to follow him. 
so that we are overwhelmed with his excellence and beauty, so that we respond to him in appreciation and love, and so that we follow him whom we love. We pay attention to what we love, and we love what we pay attention to. And the preacher is determined that this be Christ. Christ before us, Christ whom we pay attention to, Christ whom we love, Christ whom we follow. And he is determined that it be Christ before us. And the warning, lest we drift away. If we don't keep paying attention to Jesus, we will drift away from him. Now, there are some people who do commit outright apostasy. They renounce Christ. Uh, one of the gotcha questions of, uh, or two gotcha questions of the book of Hebrews, who wrote the book? Nobody knows. And what about chapter six? What about those who commit apostasy? Uh, that's how to test out anybody and what they think of Hebrews. But really the big danger isn't apostasy. The bigger danger is a slow drift away from Jesus. Imperceptible at first, therefore it's not alarming. But the once burning heart slowly cools, less and less attention is paid to Jesus, other things become more important. Our attention drifts away and we drift away. This is what happened to the church in Ephesus, where the risen Jesus says to them, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Their love for Jesus and for one another had chilled. Or you can keep paying attention, but to the wrong things. It's quite possible to devote a whole lot of attention to the wrong things. And these may sound quite noble and spiritual. They might have a veneer of Christian activity, but it's not Jesus who is the focus of attention. And so to the church in Sardis, Jesus said, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So if you had looked at Sardis, you might have seen a lot of activity, but little attention to Jesus himself. And it's easy for Christians and churches to pay primary attention to things that are other than Christ. They have drifted away from Jesus himself and eventually that drift can lead to a complete loss of connection to Jesus. This is what happened in the church in Laodicea where Jesus is shut outside the door. So how do we keep paying attention to Jesus? Well, one way is to gather together regularly as we're doing here. We gather on Sundays to pay attention Pay attention to the triune God, to pay attention to God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now as you came in, I hope you picked up this uh, flyer, worship flyer of this, for the service. And uh, on this handout are these words about why we gather. So I'd like us to read them together. They're halfway down the front page. So, so let's read together. We gather in worship to remind ourselves who God is, what he has done in Christ, what he is doing through his spirit. Our desire is to praise God and receive his spirit afresh in us, sorry, to affirm that we are family reconciled one to another and to be empowered to reach out to the world. So we've used these words, they've been printed uh, on this handout of Bolton every week since uh, 2015, I think it is, and uh, they go back to a short three-part sermon series I preached in 2012. So what do we read here? 
Well, firstly, we gather in worship. We draw near to God, as the preacher will later urge in chapter 10. We reorient ourselves because we've all become disoriented through the week. Our attention has been drawn elsewhere. When we gather and we turn to pay attention to God in Christ through his spirit. We pay attention in song, in prayer, in the hearing of the scriptures and their exposition. We see Jesus high and lifted up, seated on his throne, just as Isaiah saw the Lord. And like Isaiah, we bow and worship. We draw near, we pay attention, we reverse the drift. Secondly, we gather to remind ourselves. We hear afresh and we pay careful attention to what we have heard. We refresh our memory, our understanding of who God is, of what he has done, and what he is continuing to do through his spirit. We refresh our memory of who we are in light of that, who we are in all of our relationships with God, with one another, and with the world beyond. We pay attention vertically and we pay attention horizontally. And we do this regularly, weekly, because we need to. We reorient ourselves because we have all drifted during the week, however slightly, however imperceptibly. Some of the Hebrews have given up meeting together. And the preacher urges them not to do so. They need to keep meeting, and so do we. Not just on Sunday, there are opportunities throughout the week to meet together in various connection groups, as you've learned over the last couple of Sundays. So, are you drawing nearer to God today? Are you stationary, or are you slowly drifting away? The preacher places Christ before us and urges us to pay attention to him. We are what we love. We become like what we look at. We are formed by what we pay attention to. And the best thing to pay attention to is Christ. And as we do so, we are formed into Christ-likeness. This is God's goal for us, that we become Christ-like, like his beloved son. We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Our preacher continues with a solemn warning from history. Verse two, for since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The message spoken through the angels was the Torah, the law that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. And that word was legally binding. God and his people entered into covenant with one another. Moses read the book of the covenant to the people and the people confidently responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey, that is we will hear, we will listen. And the agreement was sealed with the blood of sacrificial animals, the blood of the covenant. But within 40 days, that generation had broken the covenant by worshiping the golden calf. And they continued to rebel against God, the one who had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And their violation and disobedience received its just punishment. They wandered around in the wilderness until they all died. 
They failed to enter God's rest because they failed to pay attention to what they had heard. The voice of God through the prophet Moses. And our preacher will expound this failure of theirs more fully in chapters three and four. And this obedience, this failure to hear and heed God's word was repeated by Israel after it entered into the land. And eventually Israel received its due punishment, exile from the land. Why? Again, it was a failure to hear, a failure to pay careful attention to what God had spoken. They had heard, but they hadn't heard. They knew the commandments, but they failed to heed God's word. Just like Adam had heard, but not heard. Adam and Eve listened to another voice. And so they were exiled from the garden. Israel was exiled from the land, all for failing to pay attention to what they had heard. And now God has spoken a much greater word in the Son. How much more is it the case then that failure to hear this greater word will bring greater negative consequences? How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? We ignore or neglect something when we cease to care about it. We disregard something when we cease to pay attention to it. Again, how do we counteract this? How do we ensure that we continue to care about this great salvation? By reminding ourselves of this greater word that God has spoken in his son, by paying most careful attention to it, so that we remain faithful in the journey as we travel together. And at the end of the journey, we shall enter God's promised rest. We shall enter into our inheritance. God has spoken in his son. The son has made purification for sins and has sat down at God's right hand. He has accomplished redemption, such a great redemption. Now, our scripture reading was from Ephesians chapter one, where we heard this magnificent paragraph about what a great salvation this is that we have obtained from God in Christ Jesus through his spirit. We read that this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So our preacher now makes three points about this great salvation. It was spoken by the Lord, it was confirmed by those who first heard, and it was validated by God. And his aim is to show us the reliability of this word of salvation so that we will pay attention. This salvation, this word of salvation is well attested. So firstly, the salvation was first announced by the Lord. And again, the Lord here is Jesus. The former word was spoken through the angels. This greater word has been spoken through the Lord. It is therefore so much greater. Jesus announced the good news that the kingdom of God had arrived. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near, he said. And the good news was announced in his death, resurrection, and ascension. As a result, he has provided purification for sins. He has sat down at God's right hand that earthly ministry, the high priestly ministry of accomplishing purification is done, it's complete. So great a salvation. Secondly, this word of salvation was confirmed to us by those who heard. So neither the preacher nor his audience 
are in the first generation that heard. They were not eyewitnesses to Jesus. But the word spread. At Pentecost, many Jews visiting Jerusalem for the festival heard and believed, and then they returned home with the good news. After the death of Stephen, the believers in Jerusalem were scattered, and they took the word to Judea and Samaria, to Antioch, even to Rome, all in fulfillment of Jesus' words, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the word came to this community, the community of the preacher and his audience. They heard, they received what they had heard, and they believed. They began following Jesus. So the author to the Hebrews was not a first-generation believer. He heard from those who had heard. This is one of the reasons why Paul cannot be the author of the book. Paul heard directly from the Lord who met him on the Damascus Road. Now we know neither the author nor the recipients nor where either of them were located, but this did not prevent the early church accepting this book as canonical, as part of authoritative scripture, this word that we have. We can be profoundly grateful for that, that we have this book. What we see here is an intergenerational transfer from those who first heard the Lord to those who in turn heard them. And so down through multiple generations until today. And we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and those who have heard and who have passed on what they heard. So for example, Paul wrote to Timothy, his spiritual son, quote, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So that's four generations there, Paul to Timothy, to Timothy's disciples, and then to their disciples, all in turn, this passing down of the word. And so that has continued to today, generation after generation, learning about Jesus from those ahead of them, then turning around and teaching those who are following them. And this is what tradition is. Tradition literally means a handing over. So you're a handing over from one generation to the next. Tradition has a, often has a bad reputation as being old and stuffy. Uh, but that's really what traditionalism is. Uh, the church historian Yaroslav Pelikan famously distinguished between tradition, which is the living faith of the dead, and traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So what we pass on down is uh, the living faith of the community of faith from generation to generation to generation. And what we receive and pass on is now written in the Christian scriptures, in the New Testament, this sort of second volume that adds to Israel's scriptures. We hear the holy scriptures, we read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. And as we absorb them, God through his spirit shapes us into the likeness of Christ. We are formed as we pay attention to Jesus. And then as we become the older generation, we transition to passing on to the next generation. So we've just heard from Todd. Um, he and Carla joined Wycliffe over 40 years ago to be Bible translators, as he explained. Um, going to serve in Ghana initially. And they did so so that others could hear and read the scriptures in their own mother tongue. But then Todd was soon moved into leadership, as he mentioned, first with him, Wycliffe, and then in fostering cooperation between multiple Bible agencies. 
And for the last many years, he's been focused on passing on to the next generation of leaders. And he has been paying attention to Jesus. And these two have come together in this book that he mentioned that was published just eight weeks ago, Learning to Lead at the Feet of Jesus. And uh, now that he's retired, uh, we hope there's a second volume coming out, Learning to Follow at the Feet of Jesus. Um, but paying attention to Jesus and using that also in how he then passes on to the next generation. And then thirdly, this word of salvation was validated by God himself. God gave supporting testimony, supplementing the Lord's proclamation and the passing on of the word of salvation. What was this supporting testimony? Well, firstly, it was signs and wonders and various miracles. These are extraordinary events, things outside of ordinary experience, and they indicate that God is at work. This was so at the time of the Exodus from Egypt. God performed signs and wonders and mighty acts, miracles. He sent a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He parted the waters of the Red Sea. He provided water and manna and quail, food and drink in the barren wilderness. All of these were supernatural events, explainable only as God at work. God was evidencing his presence in the Exodus. God was present in Jesus, who performed signs and wonders and miracles, mighty deeds. Jesus stilled the storm. He restored sight to the blind. He restored mobility to the lame. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? The disciples in the boat asked, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Again, the miracles indicated the presence of God, validating the word of Jesus. And in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, Peter told the crowd, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So the signs, the wonders, the miracles corroborated, they endorsed, they confirmed, they attested to the word proclaimed by the Lord and the word received by those who heard. They were not an end in themselves. They were supporting testimony, backing up the word, authenticating it. And after Pentecost, the apostles proclaimed the gospel, the word of salvation. And again, God confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. We read in Acts chapter 4, 14. And again, the purpose of the signs and wonders was God's confirmation of this word of salvation that had been proclaimed by Jesus and subsequently by the apostles. So do signs and wonders and miracles still occur today? Well, plenty of churches pay a lot of attention to them. But I think for many of them, the purpose is not the same. The signs and wonders become an end in themselves rather than evidence that God is validating the word of salvation that is proclaimed. But I've read and heard enough missionary stories to believe that signs, wonders, and miracles do take place on the mission field where the gospel is proclaimed in new territory, especially so in fear power societies where such mighty acts are rightly understood as manifestations of divine power to authenticate the word that is being spoken by humans. So that's God validating the word 
of salvation with signs, wonders, and miracles. And there's a second instrument that God uses to validate the word of salvation. Gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is God's gift of the Holy Spirit to us that enables us to hear, to receive, and respond to the word of salvation. And to each one who does respond, God gives gifts from the Spirit, spiritual gifts. And he distributes these according to his will, not according to our will. He chooses which gifts to give to whom. He gives gifts to everyone. And he does so in a way that all the necessary gifts are present in a community. And so these spiritual gifts are a further manifestation of God's confirming testimony of salvation. And a further gift of the Spirit is our own spiritual transformation as we receive the word of salvation, as we embrace it, as we begin to follow Jesus. And as we pay attention to Jesus, Christ before us, we are changed into his likeness. We become more and more like Jesus through the Spirit. And as we become like Jesus, we manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this transformation in the lives of those following Jesus is itself powerful testimony to the word of salvation. Now in our scripture reading there about this great salvation, Ephesians 1, we read at the end that the Holy Spirit present in us now is the down payment, the deposit, the pledge of our inheritance until the obtaining of full possession, until we obtain our blessed hope. God's Spirit is with us as we continue our journey towards God's rest, God's empowering presence in us. And that authenticates the word of salvation. So notice here that this threefold testimony is Trinitarian. It was spoken in beginning by the Lord, that is by Jesus. It is validated by God and it is further evidenced by the gift of the Spirit. God is at work in us, in Christ, through his Spirit. Now I started with the first half of the collect for the second Sunday of Advent in which we ask God's help to pay attention to scripture. In the second half, expresses the purpose so that we may hold fast to the blessed hope, so that we might persevere in our journey of faith, so that we might persevere until we enter into taking possession of the inheritance, until we reach our destination. In the meanwhile, we pay attention to what we have heard and we follow Jesus faithfully. So I close here with the full collect. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may you work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom glory forever and ever. Amen.
Go in peace.